In today's podcast, I'm honored to have Dr. Richard Halverson with me to share his wisdom regarding vaccines for children, what is worth having and what isn't, and why. Dr. Halverson has been the go-to guy for the media uh, pre the COVID media shutdown, and I've seen him on channel for BBC News, quoted in the Times and The Guardian. Uh, literally until last month, he was the medical director of Baby Jabs. He's worked as a GP in central London for over 20 years. And it was his increasing concern about the number of vaccines given to children uh, that led him to start offering, as a GP, NHS patients mercury-free vaccines before they were available on the National Health Service. Uh, and he also offered parents a choice between MMR and single vaccines for many years, which we will discuss. He wanted to give parents the opportunity to choose which vaccines they should give to their children and when they should be given. And this also led to the formation of the dedicated children's immunization service, Baby Jabs, in 2007, uh, which is still running. Uh, Richard has written, well, first, The Truth About Vaccines in 2007, but a much expanded edition called Vaccines, Making the Right Choice for Your Child. I have always said that is essential reading for any parent. So, Richard, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. Nice to be here. I mean, what got you, what was the sort of origin of your interest in vaccines as a GP? Yeah, I certainly didn't start off with, uh, with the, the particular interest when I qualified as a doctor and then, then as a GP, Patrick. Um, mm -hmm. I was actually doing a little bit of medical journalism um, and uh, by my, my, I was writing for a, a, a Sunday paper, the magazine Sunday paper. And uh, my commissioning editor said, would you, you look at the MMR vaccine for me? Um, I think there might be a story there. And I said, why? What's, what's wrong with the MMR vaccine? I, I thought it was fine. I'm giving it to all my, all my um, children in my, in my practice. She said, well, um, I think there, there, there might be a story. Just go and, go and dig around a bit. And she gave me a couple of names. And I started to dig around a bit. And I heard about all these parents who felt or were, were sure, in fact, uh, they were convinced that their child had been made autistic from the vaccine and they were, they were putting together a, uh, a group case, a libel, a, a case against, um, against the manufacturer um, to try and get some compensation for what they felt had happened to their child. Um, um, and I also talked to uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield at that time who had been involved in the research. He has had a very checkered career and is obviously persona non grata currently, but at the time he was doing some, some good research into it. Um, and I thought that there was a case to answer. I, didn't, I wasn't overly convinced, but I thought, well, yes, there is a, a suggestion that it could be causing a problem. So then I went to the government and uh, expecting to get you know, good evidence of, of safety of, of the MMR vaccine. And that's where things became problematic because I got nothing. Uh, the best that I got was a six-week follow-up of children uh, of who had been trialed with the MMR vaccine. So here we had some weak evidence that it could be causing autism, but nothing to suggest it couldn't, and that concerned me. Um, and I, I, I wrote the piece accordingly, um, uh, which infuriated the then chief medical officer at the time. Uh, but uh, it also made me think, well, if the MMR has been introduced with so little safety research, so little preclinical trials, what about other vaccines? And that really then led me to, to you know, go down the whole, the whole rabbit hole that has, has uh, obsessed me for over 20 years since then, Patrick. So let's just sort of touch on MMR because obviously every parent has an interest in that. Mercury is no longer in the, this is the measles, mumps, rubella, um, triple vaccine. Um, in your view now, we have literally decades of research in both directions. Do you think that there is a plausible link to autistic-like symptoms in some, in some children? Well, you say we've got decades of research. The problem is that there hasn't actually been that much research. Um, I will answer your question, but it's important to say I know of researchers who wanted to research the link between the possible link, should we say, between autism and bowel disease and the MMR vaccine, but they just couldn't get the funding. Their universities would not fund it. They said it's not worth our, 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 our um, 
uh, money to do that because the vaccine manufacturers who support this university will, will pull their funding. So it actually hasn't been researched to the extent that it should have been. So we, we have enough research to show that the MMR is not a large cause of autism. I'm absolutely confident, confident and happy with the fact that it is not causing the majority of autism. But it could be causing a minority of autism. And there isn't, there's some science to suggest that, but it's really coming from the parents. I've heard so many parents tell me about their child or a relative's child or a friend's child who was progressing perfectly well until they received the vaccine. And then within a short period of time, they stopped talking, they lost eye contact and they regressed into autism. And they're convinced it's the vaccine. Now, the normal response to that is, ah, well, that's when autism manifests itself in the second year of life. And they are looking for something to blame for that. And they mistakenly blame the MMR vaccine. I accept that it could be a coincidence in some, of course it could. But when so many parents are convinced it's the vaccine, I find it hard to believe that they're all wrong. Uh, the I, problem... I have the same situation because I've probably yeah. had about 50 parents, you know, directly tell me and, and, and not, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I was doing about 20 years ago, a, a kind of research, a study, uh, a trial in a special needs school uh, to do with vitamins and lowering sugar and all that sort of stuff. And I was speaking to two parents specifically who had children labeled you know, with ASD, autistic spectrum disorder. And um, I said, what, uh, you know, what, what sort of, when did it occur? And they said, we know, well, what this particular lady said, I know exactly when it occurred. Immediately after the MMR, within a couple of days, their child became nonverbal and hasn't spoken since. And then recently, or about five years ago, this is just obviously anecdotal. Uh, I'm building a house, uh, a retreat center in Wales, and my roofer says, Patrick, I understand you know something about, um, you know, uh, about autism and nutrition. And I said, why? He said, well, well, my son, you know, has autism. And I said, what, um, when did he get it? What's, what's the story? He said, well, I know exactly when he got it. He was developing perfectly normally. And then, you know, around it in his sort of second year, had the, had the jab, hasn't spoken a word since. So I think you, like me, when you're faced with, you know, probably hundreds of parents, it all starts to get a bit interesting. But what, what I'd like to ask you, and of course, this is still conjectural, is that these cases that I've come across and you've come across is very quick. And the idea was and remains that it's not a good idea to basically inject aluminium, which is a neurotoxin into your body. But I, I can't really see a little bit of aluminium, um, you know, intoxicating the brain you know, within what really, you know, is a sort of two to three to four day process, which got me thinking, it's, you know, if there is a link in some rare children, it must be some sort of autoimmune type reaction. Do you have any thoughts about that? Aluminium is, is a red herring here because there, there, there is not and never has been any aluminium in the MMR vaccine. Right. There is aluminium in other vaccines and that is an issue and we may well go on to talk about it. Uh, the issue about the MMR vaccine, and this makes it unique, is that it contains three live viruses given together. So no other vaccine in existence contains multiple live vaccines given together. Now that doesn't prove that it's dangerous, but clearly it is plausible that they could interact in the body in some way that, um, uh, that, that could be problematic. Now, there, in the early days when it was allowed for publications uh, suggesting that there could be a link to be published, um, there were several hypotheses suggested. And one of them indeed was uh, the autoimmune hypothesis, that it was creating an autoimmune reaction. And in fact, we do know that some cases of, aut of autism are autoimmune related. So that is plausible. Um, and then there are other hypotheses to suggest um, that it's caused by toxins absorbed from, from the gut, um, which has been damaged by the, mainly the measles virus component. So, so assuming that it does cause autism in a very small minority, um, which I do believe, not a large minority case at all, but a small minority, then we, we, we don't know 
how that might be. And that research is not being done because the official line is it doesn't. It doesn't mm. cause autism. So why on earth are you wasting money researching it? Mm. Now, if it's the measles antibodies, it would suggest that there could even be a problem with single measles um, vaccinations, which annoyingly ceased to be offered on the NHS. Well, you'll probably know exactly when. And I know uh, baby jabs, you can get a single measles vaccine. Is that much safer? What's the story there? It is probable that the single measles vaccine can extremely rarely also trigger autism. But then so can natural measles very rarely trigger autism. So there is a probable link. I'm quite sure that the single measles vaccine is safer than the MMR. For a start, it only contains one virus rather than three. That has to make it safer to start with. The removal from the NHS is very interesting. So when I started off as a GP, all, all, the, um, all the single measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines were available on the NHS without a problem. So if a parent came along and said, look, I'd rather have them separately, doc. You know, I don't like having them all together. Wasn't a problem. That was sanctioned by, by the Department of Health. As soon as the hypothesis of a link between MMR and autism was uh, was, was, was put forward, the availability of the single vaccines was withdrawn. Completely the opposite to what you think would happen would be that the NHS would make sure that there were ample single vaccines available so that parents who were, rightly or wrongly, concerned about the possible link between autism and the MMR could get their children vaccinated. But instead, in a perverse move, the department decided to remove the availability of the, of the single vaccines immediately after the, um, the, the concern about the link between MMR and autism was voiced. Roughly how many parents um, have not given their child the MMR? Is it 20%, 10%? Ooh, um, you're asking me to guess now. I, I don't know the figures off the top of my head and it varies between parts of the country in... Um, in, in London, it's, it's probably around um, 15%. It's above the average. Um, in the, the country in general, it might be, might, be, might be sort of 10%, that sort of figure. But don't quote me on that. These yeah, are very I mean, ballpark figure. It, almost, it always struck me that uh, those parents concerned about MMR, if, me, if the single measles was made available, probably a good chunk of them would say, yeah, okay, I'm okay with that. So Undoubtedly, is, because yeah. yes, they've been coming to my to my clinic, which has to be private by necessity, yeah. um, for for many years, asking for that. And of course, those are the those are only the people who a can afford it and b can, are able to access my clinic to do that. So of course, you're, you're quite right, Patrick. But if it were available on the NHS, the uptake, the protection, the herd immunity against measles would be much higher. Yeah, and mumps, mumps and rubella, uh, you know, German measles. It's not really an issue until sort of puberty. So why not just delay those two? Yeah. yeah. No, mumps and rubella are, are not necessary. I mean, mumps, the, the vaccine against mumps is making mumps more of a problem, not less. So mumps is overwhelmingly a mild and harmless disease, especially in childhood. There is a widespread concern that it could cause infertility in boys, but actually there is no proof that it can. I looked hard for it when I researched my book, and there is no proof that mumps can cause infertility. The, the, the thinking comes from the fact that if you catch it after puberty, if a man, boy, catches it after puberty, he has a one in four chance of having a painful swollen testicle that is uncomfortable and hurts for a few days. Um, and obviously that's where sperm is manufactured. So hence it became a hypothesis that it could cause infertility, though it's never been, never been proven. So. It's really not a serious disease anyway. There is, no, there is no need for a mumps vaccine. And what in fact, vaccinating children against mumps, it's a relatively ineffective component of the MMR. It's the least effective component. It wears off. So all it's doing is pushing the disease into older age groups, into adults and teenagers, for whom the risk of complications, though small, is greater than it is as a child, and it's a more unpleasant disease. So actually, it's making the disease more of a problem, not less. And German measles, rubella, 
Should should girls have a German measles vaccine? Overwhelmingly, a mild and harmless illness, except as you're alluding to in the one situation um, of pregnancy. If contracted in the first trimester of pregnancy, there is a high risk of damage to the unborn baby. So what the NHS are trying to do is to give herd immunity by vaccinating boys and girls twice with the MMR. I think the situation that we had before that was vaccinating girls only was uh, working perfectly well as teenagers is what they used to do. In fact, they used to allow girls to catch rubella as a child, which would give them better and longer lasting immunity than the vaccine and give the vaccine as a, as a sort of safety net as teenagers, which was a very sensible plan that worked well. There were very few cases of congenital rubella syndrome that we're trying to prevent with the vaccine. <clears throat> yes, giving boys and girls two doses of vaccine has reduced that number but the, the numbers were very small anyway. And it is questionable whether the benefits of preventing 25 cases of congenital rubella syndrome, which is what we're, we're doing here, uh, is greater than the uh, risks of giving two doses of MMR to all boys and girls. Now, for those parents listening, I am <laughs> going to put a link to a schedule, a sort of sensible schedule, uh, that baby jabs often talk about for children vaccines and also most importantly a link to the book vaccines make <coughs> the right choice for your child so in this podcast we're not going to go through every disease but kind of you know really here we are exploring principles and one of the principles that concerns me is whether or not and I haven't seen any um, there is uh, any sort of study on the combined effect of multiple vaccines given very, very early in life. So I'm actually, I have four grandchildren and I've seen what's been offered, you know, literally in the first few months of this uh, precious little baby's life. And it just makes me wonder, you know, what is the effect of these multiple vaccines offered to a child in their first year of life? Has anyone actually looked at that? You're right. There is a, there is a big gap in the in the research there, Patrick. Usually these vaccines, when they're initially researched, are just uh, tested on their own. Um, and the, the combination is not sufficiently looked at. Obviously, as they're added into the schedule, then they are followed up for a little bit with the, with the whole combination. But that is one of the problems of where we are now. So when I was a child in the 1960s, I probably got vaccinated against one, two, three, four diseases maybe, um, whereas now we're vaccinating routinely against 13 or 14 different diseases. And so many, many, many more vaccines have been, have been given. There's a whole change of philosophy. Um, instead of vaccinating against just um, a few serious diseases that actually affect quite a lot of people, we're now vaccinating against really very mild diseases that we don't need to vaccinate and against diseases that though, though very serious are extremely rare. Um, so, so, no, there is a big, big lack of research there, and that is a problem because it also combines with the problem of long-term effects. So the massive rise in autoimmune disease, for example, we know that vaccines can cause autoimmune disease. That is beyond doubt, beyond question whatsoever. But we don't know how much is contributing. We can only pick it up when cases come on fairly soon after the vaccine. But if it's having a long-term effect, if all these vaccines are having a long-term effect, and most vaccines and aluminium, to bring that back into the subject, are actually pushing the immune system into an allergic or into an autoimmune direction. That's not proof that they cause autoimmune disease, but it certainly suggests that they could be contributing to the massive rise in autoimmune disease. And if, it, if a problem comes on several years after the vaccine, but contributed to by the vaccine, probably as a cofactor, not necessarily the only thing, we need uh, genetic predisposition and all that as well, um, then it is just not, it's not picked up. And so, but it would be so difficult to do, Patrick, because mm -hmm. we would have to have a randomized trial of tens of thousands of children, if not hundreds of thousands, giving some lots of vaccines, some no vaccines, and following them up for many years. And there's just no way that that would be done. It would be considered totally unethical to deprive some children of vaccines. 
What so, about what about a much simpler piece of epidemiology where you simply look at a group of, of children who've had no vaccines and we know that there's you know there's several yeah. thousand of them uh, and look at the rate of autoimmune disease versus a sort of matched group of children who've had the regular schedule. Well, that is that that is done, as you say, and matched is the crucial word. It's so difficult because parents <clears throat> or families of children who are not vaccinated are different. by their very nature different yeah, yeah. To, to parents who are vaccinated. Now, maybe if they're parents who make the active choice because they're more involved with sort of healthy and natural living, if you like, they'll mm -hmm. be probably feeding their child in a, in a, in a healthier way and, and looking after them nutritionally better, for example. Or at the other end of the scale, there might be severe deprivation. Who, who children are so deprived they can't just get to have the vaccines. So comparing these are very, very difficult. It mm. could be done, but it would be difficult. And it hasn't been done. Um, so on the whole sort of topic of science on vaccines, I remember reading what I thought was a very interesting study on uh, DPD, DPT, uh, and you can say what those stand for in Africa. I think it was in Guinea-Bissau or something, where the set of and it was a public health study by the you know regular officials. You, you'll know this study, I'm sure. Uh, but basically, you know, half of the kids happened to get the vaccine and the other half didn't. And the assumption, and this is the point I'm getting to, there is kind of an assumption that vaccines work. There's an assumption that vaccines are safe. Uh, but in this particular study, to their shock they actually found the rate of childhood mortality was, was much higher in those that have been vaccinated and those that hadn't. Yes, more than one study, quite a lot of studies. And you're based, there's the researchers are mainly based in Guinea-Bissau in, in West Africa, you're right. Um, and they looked, they, they, they wanted to look at the actual overall effect on mortality. So it's all very well if vaccines prevent someone getting, a, a child getting a disease, but that's not much good if it doesn't actually improve their improve their, um, uh, their their life and prevent them from dying. So they looked at a number of vaccines, and they found that the DTP, the diphtheria and tetanus whooping cough, P stands for pertussis, it's the medical name for whooping cough. So the three-in-one DPT and the hepatitis B vaccine, both of those increased the mortality of the children who received it. So I'll say that again, because it's extraordinary. So children who received a three-in-one diphtheria, tetanus and whooping cough vaccine, or who received a hepatitis B vaccine, were more likely to die than children who had not received them, which is absolutely extraordinary. The ballot, the reverse of that, to be fair to vaccines, was that certain live vaccines, such as the measles vaccine and the BCG, the vaccine for tuberculosis, children who received that were more likely to live than the, the benefit was greater than just from preventing the disease. So this is the unintended consequences of vaccines that we're, is just be beginning to be looked at, but which is fascinating. And uh, it shows how little we understand about how vaccines work. Jerome Byrne, you will uh, recall, award-winning medical journalist, uh, sent me a link in relation to measles, a very nice government um, website page which lists uh, all uh, uh, measles deaths, uh, whether the uh, person or child dying was vaccinated or unvaccinated. And also I added a third column, which was the number of cases of measles in that particular year. And what was fascinating about this was there's absolutely no correlation. In other words, in a year where there was a higher instance of measles, there could be no deaths. In another year where there was very low measles, there would be one death. Was the death in an unvaccinated child? Absolutely no correlation. So it, it sort of got me thinking as to, I mean, how much science have we actually done on these always assumed to be the right thing to do vaccines? Yes, well, we've become obsessed with vaccines as, as you know, the answer to rather too much, to be honest. Um, measles is particularly fascinating and particularly instructive to look at. When I was young, we all caught measles. I'm getting old now, and I was a child in the 1960s when, when everyone caught measles. It was what you got through, a bit like chickenpox now. Um, 
it wasn't completely harmless, about 25, 50, no, between 50 and 100 children died every year in this country from measles, though half of those would be children with serious underlying health problems. So the risk to a healthy child was extremely small. Um, when the vaccine was uh, introduced in 1968, the British Medical Journal uh, wrote an article questioning why we were introducing a vaccine uh, for what they described as a trivial disease. Obviously, times have changed since then. So the measles vaccine is pretty effective at preventing measles. But of course, the, the number, measles was a big killer at the, at the turn of the century, that is the turn of the 19th, 19th to the 20th century. It was a big killer. But the deaths from measles had fallen by more than 99%. So nearly all the deaths had fallen before the introduction of the vaccine. So the vaccine did precious little to reduce deaths from measles. Um, probably that was caused by better sanitation and better health, better food, better living, better standards of living. Um, but it did certainly dramatically reduce the number of cases. Measles is absolutely fascinating, though fascinating, <clears throat> because there are benefits from measles. So, <clears throat> excuse me, catching measles has benefits. Catching measles, and this is very good science, it's published in more than one paper, several papers show that catching measles reduces a child's risk of allergies, reduces a child's risk of asthma, and even remarkably reduces a child's risk of some cancers, particularly lymphomas and leukemia. This research also applies to other common infectious diseases such as chickenpox and, um, and uh, rubella and mumps and uh, whooping cough, um, but is particularly strong for measles. So it, we don't look at this, we don't, we should be having a debate. Yes, measles can occasionally be dangerous, it's rare in a healthy child, but it also has benefits as well. And we're not, we're not discussing the pros and cons. We're not discussing the, uh, the, the benefits versus the risks. We just see the, the risks from, from measles and not, uh, not the possible benefits as well. Now, my teacher was Dr. Linus Pauling, who a uh, genius chemist spent the last 39 years of his life researching nothing but vitamin C and principally its, its viral effects. And, uh, it is antiviral and has been shown to be so for polio, for AIDS, HIV, COVID. We know we now have 18 relevant clinical trials on that. So my sort of general view for any viral disease is, you know, massively up your vitamin C when you get it. And then the chances of developing any sort of serious complications uh, are very little. I don't really want to sort of detour into that. Uh, and it may or may not be your area. But in other words, things that you can do and i think this does exist also so this is this is very much your area not mine Patrick. yes i, I wouldn't yeah. wouldn't dare uh, get involved <clears throat> but i think even with who from a cost effective uh, uh point of view for countries that can't you know easily get access to vaccines um vitamin a a couple of high doses of vitamin a given to children massively reduces measles deaths as well so yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot kind of, of research into that isn't there yes yeah so there's kind of different ways of approaching it but you mentioned, I'd like to kind of talk about the last 10 years and the shift in concepts and context, you know, for vaccines. Because about eight years ago, I was, um, I was given the um, a statement, actually, from the then new CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. And the essence of which uh, stated that uh, we've got no blockbuster drugs. Most of big farmers, trillion plus dollar uh, income comes from blockbuster drugs, which means a drug that can be given to many, like statins. And a, a drug has a 20-year patent, usually five years is consumed in the research. You've got about a 15-year window to make your money. And I've watched, because I happen to specialize in the area, this scramble to get a drug for dementia, you know, that has just failed. I mean, all all trials have failed. There is no drug for dementia. And I, I mean, the, the, the billions that have been spent pursuing red herrings has been quite extraordinary when we already know an awful lot about how to prevent it. So here was this head of GSK saying blockbuster drugs in the Western world are really over as a principal um, profit source. We have to move to vaccines. We've got to uh, get our profit stream from vaccines. So my sort of question here is over the last 10 years, what has been the change in the general paradigm uh, in relation to vaccines? 
vaccines did not used to be profitable. It is very true. Um, but uh, they, as you're alluding to, they've become very much more profitable um, in recent years. The first blockbuster billion dollar vaccine was Prevnar, uh, the pneumococcal vaccine that is, is given routinely as part of the um, NHS schedule here. That was the first blockbuster vaccine that set the path. Uh, another huge one was um, the HPV vaccine that was introduced, uh, it was marketed for cervical cancer, it was gonna protect cervical cancer. Um, it's a completely unnecessary vaccine. It's a nasty vaccine. Um, it was the, the manufacturer won an award, a marketing award for producing a market out of thin air. <laughs> In other words, there was no need for this vaccine whatsoever. Um, but they managed to scare us all that uh, all girls were going to die from cervical cancer unless unless we had this vaccine. Cervical cancer is a relatively rare. It's about the 10th common, most common cancer. Um, I'm not saying that it doesn't cause deaths. It does. And that it's horrendous when it happens. Um, but brain cancer, for example, is more common in women than than uh, cervical cancer. But we don't we don't hear about that. and We don't think of it as, as common. Um, and the vaccine, it causes very nasty autoimmune, autoimmune reactions. So that was a, that made a huge amount of, huge amount of money. And there are more and more, as you say, blockbusters. So it's, be, it's becoming very profitable. And it's quite dangerous, of course, when big money comes into, into any business because manufacturers will start looking at the bottom line, the profit, maybe a little bit more than... Um, than they do the, the health benefits of anything that they're producing. And they will, of course, argue, vaccine manufacturers, all big pharma, all the drug companies will argue that, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to serve humanity. They're, you know, they're just all about doing good, you know, which is, I'm going to say, complete and utter nonsense. I'm not suggesting for a minute that they're out trying to harm us, but their bottom line is to make money for their directors and their and their shareholders, and it is not to benefit us. Just to look at one factor, the amount that they put into marketing, the amount of money that drug companies, vaccine manufacturers spread on marketing is many, many times that, that they, they spend on research and development. So they wouldn't tell you that. And what's so changed? It has, yeah, and yeah, what's changed in the climate of being able to do the science, talk about the science, um, you know, both in the scientific community and the medical community, uh, and also in the media in the last few years, from your point of view? Because I used to be quoted a lot, and I haven't seen that, certainly in these COVID times. Yeah. It's become very problematic, because 20 years ago, we could, we could discuss vaccines and discuss the benefits and discuss, discuss the risks in a reasonably open way. The now to question vaccines, and we've seen this so much with COVID, just to question uh, a vaccine or the need for it or the benefit of it, you're accused as anti-vaccine and you might as well be a Holocaust denier or a flat earther. You're completely, it's completely unacceptable. You're, you're anti-scientific and it's, and it's outrageous, which has become hugely problematic. And this is the problem that, that, that parents, that thousands of parents who I've talked to through my baby jabs clinic that I've just retired from, baby jabs, um, that they, they come to me and they say, look, we're just not happy with all the vaccines that we're getting on the NHS, that they all have to be given so early at the same time. We're not anti-vax. They virtually all tell me they wouldn't come to a vaccine clinic if they were. We're not anti-vax. We just do we need to give them all? Do we need to give them all together? Is that the only way of doing it? The media have been pilloried by the government and have more or less been told that if the media publish stories about adverse reactions of vaccines, then that will put parents off vaccinating their children and then children will die and there'll be blood on their hands they'll be responsible for those children's deaths. So they're terrified of, of, of writing about vaccines in any objective way. And if this is a huge problem, that we're not allowed to have a debate, a discussion, it's just not, it's not acceptable. And that's, 
that's so unscientific <laughs> as to be um, unbelievable. And the same problem with the science. I mentioned earlier on, I knew of doctors who could not get funding to do certain research. Um, and this is partly tied in with, again, what we're just talking about with big pharma, the big, the multinational pharmaceutical companies who make the vast majority of, of vaccines that are, are used in the developed world, in the, in the wealthy part of the world, um, they are hugely wealthy. I mean, they're in the, you know, in, in, in the top, top 50 of the, the FTSE 100. They're, you know, they're some of the richest countries, <clears throat> richest uh, manufacturers in the world. I mentioned countries, some of them have, are wealthier than smaller countries. And so they have a huge influence because they research, they fund most, the majority of research into drugs and vaccines comes from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes. And that should not be so, because we know, fact, we know from scientific research that research funded by the pharmaceutical industry is more likely to favour its products than research that comes uh, from elsewhere. So we're, we're, we're a hugely problematic position here, Patrick, where the pharmaceutical industry is, is having a huge influence, virtually controlling the direction of travel of medicine and that includes vaccines as well what's your take on the mrna te technology which of course could be applied to you know many viruses going forward yeah i i, I don't know anything about that you know in in this in, brand new it's never been used before <clears throat> it may be a fantastic way forward you know it may be the answer that future vaccines should should have um it may cause huge problems that we haven't foreseen, but it's, in, it's impossible to know at this very early stage, as it is really difficult to know the true benefits and risks of any of the COVID vaccines, um, which I'm sure you'll want to go on to discuss, so I can bring about that, um, uh, because it's just too soon. Usually we have years of research before a, a vaccine is introduced, and then we need several years of post-marketing experience of use of the vaccine before we can get a clear idea of the risks and benefits. And so this has happened so quickly with the COVID vaccines. Um, never before has a vaccine been rushed through research and, and, uh, and, and manufacture at the, um, at the speed that the COVID vaccines have and used on the massive scale that they have. It's just unprecedented. Um, and so we, it'll take us a while to really know what what they've done, good and bad. And that's really that sort of post-surveillance is either passive in the UK through the yellow card system, in the US it's it's VAERS, V-A-E-R-S, mm -hmm. um, or it's active actually in studies. And one of the things that I, mm. I just found extraordinary was, you know, I mean, the, the big pharma can spend money on big trials. So, you know, 22,000 people in each group in the Pfizer study. And, and uh, when they sort of came clean with bigger results last July, uh, one of the interesting things was that the overall mortality uh, was greater in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. And, and I mean, we're not talking about a, a lot of deaths, uh, you know, sort of under 20. And I went through and eliminated, this was just for my own sort of thinking, those that could not in any way be vaccine related. So one was an overdose, uh, another was a suicide and so on. Uh, but, you know, so that was that was an actual trial, because if you think you've either got a passive system that relies on people reporting something, usually mm -hmm. doctors, mm -hmm. uh, or you've got an active system. And and I was saying, you know, do we actually have, you know, mortality safety data? And then I came across and I'm sure, you know, these this group, the Drug Safety Unit um, down at Southampton University, and their job is to, you know, is to look at drug safety. And what I've, and they did a very nice systematic review uh, of all studies uh, um, and effectively concluded that nine in 10 deaths that did occur were not reported on a passive system. And I wanted to kind of get closer for COVID really. And I came across a study on MMR, which had triggered thrombocytopenia, uh, this sort mm -hmm. of clotting problem, which is exactly my friends in the Oxford AstraZeneca group said, you know, this is our worry that we'll get some sort of autoimmune kind of clotting situation. So that has occurred with MMR as well. 
And in this particular study, which is one of the most favorable for vaccines, it was a 50% underreporting. Uh, so not, not nine out of 10 deaths not being reported, but you know, one in two deaths not being reported. And I think at the moment there's a legal case in, in America, um, uh, and obviously if lawyers are going to fight something, they say 45,000 deaths in the, in the US associated with vaccines. The official figure, well, I thought it was 20,000 in VAERS, but actually I didn't realize that 10,000 of those are from outside the US, it's actually 10,000. In the UK, it's 2,000 uh, actual uh, yellow card reported deaths. And these are deaths you know, within a very small period of days after the vaccine. And it's looking like a five times factor you know, it may not be 2,000, the real, real figure may be close to 10,000, not all of them will be caused by vaccines. But, you know, it's, we're already seeing <clears throat> massive warning signs, and I just don't understand why no one is paying any attention to this. Yes, um, following up uh, after a vaccine has been introduced is difficult, and as you say, most of it is done through what is called passive reporting. In fact, as you say, it relies on people to report it, and as you say, it's usually doctors. Though for some years now, um, uh, any any anybody is allowed to report what they suspect to be a vaccine. Now, there's a big problem with passive reporting. Of course, is that you've alluded to one, which is massive underreporting, particularly of relatively minor problems. But the massive underreporting, um, it just people just don't get around to doing it, um, or they don't actually think it would be, or it's probably not the vaccine, so they don't bother to do it. Um, also, of course, there are it is possible links, so there'll be in a, in some ways there's overreporting as well because things it doesn't prove a link, but it just suggests a link. So to get figures from them is extremely difficult. What I did do is I looked at the yellow card reporting, that's, as you say, the passive reporting of possible adverse reactions to, to uh, diseases. Um, and I compared for a particular thing for something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a serious paralyzing disorder that most people make a long and slow recovery from, though some die, uh, that has had previous link with vaccines before, particularly with the flu vaccine. Um, and I looked at the re <clears throat> reported cases of that from the AstraZeneca compared to the Pfizer, because I thought, well, you know, it may not be, we can't get statistics here, but roughly the same proportion should be reported. I would have thought, you know, if, if, it's, if it's not causing much of a problem, you know, it'll be, it'll be low numbers in both that may or may not be related to the vaccine. But I found that the, it was about five times as more cases were being reported with the AstraZeneca than with the Pfizer consistently over the time. That was happening again and again. And I thought, well, that's a red flag. You'd expect the numbers to be to be similar, unless one of them was actually causing the problem. I mean, they both might be, but uh, but certainly at least one of them. Um, and eventually, it's it's happened. They have now. It's it's been not much talking about it, but it's been added to the um, official side effect profile of the AstraZeneca vaccine is Guillain-Barré syndrome. Um, though, as I say, there wasn't much much talk about it, but it's a it's a big problem, um, passive reporting, and it's difficult to, to interpret it as well. Now, AstraZeneca stopped their trial on teenagers. They considered the, the risk, you know, they considered it to be unethical to do so. Pfizer proceeded. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about vaccinating children. Some countries are vaccinating children under the age of 12. We are not yet. Uh, what is your view about vaccinating children either with the Pfizer, AstraZeneca or any COVID-related vaccine under the age of 18? From my understanding of the data and the figures so far, there is absolutely no case to vaccinate children against COVID. In order to justify vaccination, a disease must be extremely serious and extremely common, really, to, to justify it, especially when you've got a novel vaccine with very little information, uh, data on possible side effects. Now, COVID is common, certainly. <laughs> it's becoming endemic in the, in the community. In other words, we're gonna have to live with it. But in children, it is absolutely not serious. It is rare for children to be seriously harmed by, by COVID. And so it would, in my view, be unethical to vaccinate children against a disease 
that they're extremely unlikely to suffer serious complications from. But we, the vaccine is, is, to all intents and purposes, experimental. And we know that it can cause some serious adverse reactions. I mentioned one that's already been proven, Guillain-Barre syndrome. So it would be unethical. In fact, I think the whole obsession with vaccines is extremely disturbing and is just a, a, a further example of the route that we're going down. Is the, the, the solution seems to be just give more and more jabs. We now have a disease that is really quite mild. For the vast majority, the, the latest variant, the Omicron variant of COVID seems to be not much milder than a bad cold. Certainly no more serious than flu, but yet we're talking about compulsory vaccination in some countries. And we're talking about compulsory vaccination of healthcare workers, even though many of them will be immune already from having antibodies from having the disease itself. It's, it's nonsensical. It's nonsensical what we're doing. Now, uh, the general sort of concept of a vaccine is that it's more or less 100% effective. Perhaps you might at some point in your life need a top up. Uh, and uh, you know, even if the antibody level drops off, you've got sort of T cell memory. But then you mentioned healthcare workers. Last month, we had uh, Dr. Steve James, consultant anaesthetist in one of the uh, COVID ICU wards. Uh, saying to uh, Sachit Javid and also on Radio 4 that, you know, from his point of view, the um, protection, uh, I mean, he decided not to have it because he's healthy and the risk is minimal and he's got the antibodies anyway, but he said basically mm. the effect mm. wears off within a couple of months. So what are you going to do? You know, just keep vaccinating, keep vaccinating, keep vaccinating. I, some people even say it's not a vaccine now, it's, it's a treatment, but I, you know, this is just sort of linguistics as such. But um, you know, is that the case that these boosters are just gonna wear off? I mean, where's the, I mean, my concern with like flu jabs is that you know, they've even got questionable data and you have it once a year when the flu season kicks in. But yes, yeah, so, so uh, what are your thoughts about this sort of wearing off of antibody T cell response and the need well, for more and more vaccines. Effectiveness of vaccines, or <clears throat> no vaccine is 100% effective at all. Average effective of, vac of, of vaccine is probably around 80%. That's typical, some more, some less. So, you know, no vaccine is 100% effective. Um, and all vaccines do wear off over, over time to a degree. Their antibody their levels re re reduce. We don't actually know how vaccines work. That may seem remarkable, but we don't. Yes, they, they produce antibodies. Yes, they have an effect on our T cells, which is another white blood cell that, that, that is part of the body's um, uh, defense against, against diseases. But we don't actually know how vaccines work. But to, to um, I, I totally agree with this, with this um, consultant. I mean, it was, it was great that actually the, the, the mainstream media reported what he was saying <laughs> to challenge uh, um, um, Mr. Javid. Because here is a, an experienced ITU consultant who may not be allowed to continue in his work in a few months time because he has not been vaccinated, even though he has probably got as much as, if not more protection than a vaccinated person. But to the whole concept of insisting on vaccines, a vaccine passport, it's completely mistaken because the research shows that while the vaccines do appear to be reasonably good at protecting an individual who has the vaccine against serious disease and death, I'm, I, they, they, they do seem to work from what I can see, they do not work at preventing transmission well, only very little. So a vaccinated person is just about as much likely to catch the disease and pass it on to someone else as an unvaccinated person. So there is absolutely no logic, no scientific basis to insist on people being vaccinated before they go somewhere. It, it, it doesn't make sense, but yet we're obsessed with these vaccine passports um, and, and, and compulsory vaccination is, is outrageous because we're not protecting the community. If we had a disease 
that was killing one in 10 person and vaccinating someone stopped you spreading it. I can see a case for compulsory vaccinating the whole country so that we're not decimated. But we're nowhere, <laughs> we're nowhere near that. We have a disease that is mild and that have being vaccinated doesn't stop you transmitting it anyway. Now, I was looking on an American website at, at the uh, and public enemy number one uh, was Robert Kennedy, who runs, he's an advocate, he's not a doctor. He runs the Children's Health Defense. I'm sure you're uh, well aware of his work. You probably know him. Um, what is your view generally of what Robert Kennedy tends to say in the vaccine space? Uh, I don't know of his work in great detail, so I can't give you a detailed response to your question. I am aware of him, and I'm aware that he is, he, a bit like me, I suppose, challenges some of the orthodoxy of vaccines and is raising concerns about the possible adverse um, effects of vaccines, which is very much what I have been doing. So um, I think we're singing from the same hymn sheet there. Have you seen him be inaccurate? In other words, is he someone that we should trust, you know, um, or not? I trust? haven't. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't listened to him enough yeah. to 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 be able to answer that question, Patrick. To be honest, I have I've found him very bold and strong, and I haven't been able to fault him on the science yet. You know. Uh, anyway, it's fantastic that there are people like you uh, and he and others out there questioning the science that's that's uh you know that's something that's actually how you do science is by questioning the science mm -hmm. so to say trust the science is actually the most anti-science you know statement possible as mm. we to stifle debate is extremely unscientific yeah so uh what should a parent do uh my daughter's just given birth you know broadly speaking uh, if this were your um, child, what would you be looking at recommending in the context of children's vaccines? Goodness me, I could go on for another hour going into detail here, and that okay. time we don't have because I think <laughs> I, I think can, we're coming. I can give the end of our time. I can give a link to a suggested, you know, uh, uh, schedule, so to speak. All vaccines have benefits, and all vaccines have risks, and they are very different. And so for each vaccine, we have to look at how serious is the disease? How likely is it that my baby will contract the disease? How effective is the vaccine against this disease? And how safe is the vaccine? And so whether to have any individual vaccine or not depends on the balance of all those four things. And they're very, they're different for every disease and different for every vaccine. So one can't say vaccines are good or vaccines are bad. Both are ridiculous statements. Some now, vaccines yeah, are good, in my view, and some we really shouldn't be giving, in my view. Uh, your book, Vaccines Making the Right Choice for Your Child, will give a link for people to buy that very easily. And it does have an alternative vaccine schedule in there. So that's a kind of a very good starting point. Um, the other that's alternative... just that's that's an option. That's right. I mean, it's yeah. it's 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 an, it's an alternative. Yes, it's an alternative. So that's kind of one way forward. Baby jabs, uh, which is in London, I believe, uh, continues. So that's an option as well to go to baby jabs and get some. That advice. is that is being continued um, by under my, my my colleague, Dr. Gopreet Gill, is taking that over. So with that that will continue to offer the service of of alternative schedules for. For a, for a child, yes. Um, are there anything else a parent can do? Uh, you know, any other sort of alternative approaches? Because it, it is quite, you know, the, the push to get vaccines young is strong. Mm. Are there, are there, some, strong. Are, there, are there some things that you might, um, I mean, for example, if you took the view of, I just don't want to vaccinate my child before the age of six months, you know, are there some sort of, positions i know you can't sort of compromise yourself in that way but is that a inappropriate type response for a parent i think any parent who looks into the facts looks at the risks and benefits and whatever decision they come to even if it wasn't a vaccinate at all uh, 
I wouldn't personally recommend not vaccinating at all. I think the benefits of some vaccines do outweigh the risks, um, which is what we're looking at. But I would I would respect that decision, and I wouldn't say that they're absolutely crazy. Um, there is evidence that delaying vaccines reduces risk of asthma, for example. So it is it is it's such a difficult balance <laughs> between those risks and those benefits. Um, and delaying vaccines is just one example of that. You know, on the one hand, there is a desire to protect against some of the more serious diseases earlier. On the other hand, we know that there are benefits from allowing the immune system to develop on its own a little bit longer. Um, so it is, it, it's difficult and I don't pretend that I know all the answers or that there is an easy answer. And it will, it will depend on each individual parent's um, assessment of how they approach risk and how they approach disease as well. And that's very different from parent to parent. But I do believe there should be, there should be some, there should be more choice than there is now. The problem is the mainstay on the NHS is now a six in one vaccine, and that cannot be subdivided. So if you want to vaccinate on the NHS against any of those six diseases, and I think some of them are worth, worth vaccinating against, you have to, for example, give a hepatitis B vaccine that is completely nonsensical. It's a sexually transmitted disease or a disease caught through blood that uh, children, it is virtually impossible for children to get. So that makes it very, very difficult for parents. I often wondered about the patent side of this, and you may have a view. In other words, if you have a patent for a particular vaccine, let's say for three vaccines, and the patent runs out, if you can combine those and make a three-in-one or a five-in-one or a six-in-one, you've effectively got a new product. So it, 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 my, my sort of conspiratorial mind thought that maybe the reason why we move uh, to now to the six-in-one, it was five-in-one, is you can actually get a new patent. And uh, with a new patent, you can charge basically, you know, a lot more. It, that may well... That may well be so. Certainly drug manufacturers have done that with, 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 with drugs, with orthodox drugs. They've just tweaked them a little bit when they're nearing the end of their, of their patent um, and then got a new patent and then they've stopped marketing the original and just market the new one for that very reason. Um, as I said before, drug companies are out to make money. That is their, that is their raison d'etre. I'm not suggesting, as I said before, that they're out to harm and I'm... You know, Please don't think that I think that, but their main priority, like any big business, is to make a profit. So, Richard, um, thank you immensely, not only for this hour of time, but also for your decades of sticking your neck out and doing the research, reporting the results, giving parents options. Really, you have been a lifesaver for so many parents. And I cannot recommend more highly. I think it is essential reading to get hold of the book, Vaccines, Making the Right Choice for Your Child by Dr. Richard Halverson. We will put the link up uh, with this podcast. You have Baby Jabs. Uh, what is the, uh, the website for Baby Jabs? Uh, babyjabs.co.uk. And is there some useful information there on particular vaccines? There is a lot of information there. Um, it's about to be changed, I think, but I think all the information and the links will remain the same. Um, currently, it's the one that I put together that has some, it has information on all the diseases and all the vaccines, obviously in a much briefer form than the book. Though what it does do, it has a few direct links to the scientific papers. Um, and though the book is heavily referenced, obviously you don't have direct access to the science scientific papers, they're all listed there, many, many hundreds of them. Um, but there are some direct links as well to the scientific paper. So it's, it's, it's easy to access it. And I imagine that they will be staying there um, when um, my, my, my successor, Dr. Guild, um, puts together her, her own website. Um, I imagine she will transfer that as well. And now that you're a man of relative leisure, who I hope gets some time to, to recover from all the amazing work you've done, um, with a good heart and an active mind, I hope that we will see future publications from you to help to keep us fully informed <laughs> on the subject of children's vaccines. So, Richard, thank you immensely uh, for coming. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, part of our Health Heroes series. 
Next month, I'll be interviewing the founding director of the charitable Beckley Foundation, Amanda Fielding, who has done more to open up and expand research into psychedelics for mental health than anyone. In the words of psychiatrist Dr. Stanislav Grof, psychedelics are to the study of the mind what the microscope is to biology and the telescope is to astronomy. We'll be exploring this new frontier of research and what it shows us about mental health, happiness and consciousness itself.